The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, for those of you who are new here, maybe don't know my face, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be able to share the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, for those of you online, welcome. Those in the overflow, welcome. So glad that you're joining us as well. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 34, and read our passage for today. And calling the crowd to him, that is to Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I was 20 and he was 14. I was in a year-long school at Applegate Christian Fellowship called the School of Ministry where I was learning about the Bible and learning about ministry and going on missions trips. But my brother Caleb at 14 had spent the year going back and forth to Dornbecker's Children's Hospital in Portland to receive chemo treatments and undergo a bone marrow transplant. You see, he was battling leukemia while I was away. But on this weekend, I was home. And so was he. It was finally a chance just to hang out and be together. And I really wanted to start a conversation with him where I could offer some sort of encouragement for the trial that he was going through, where I could say to him, you know, hey, this is, this is how you can cling to hope in the Lord. Uh, even though you're going through great struggle and trial. And so to initiate, I asked him, I said, hey, Caleb, what, what, what's your favorite Bible passage? What's your favorite Bible story? He thought about it for a minute. And then to my surprise, he said, probably the parable of the sheep and the goats. You know the one where Jesus separates out the sheep and the goats? I just sat there stunned. You see... In the previous week, I had just gone through a class that taught us through the parable of the sheep and goats in the school of ministry. And my last class before the weekend, I'd been taught through Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, the parable of the sheep and goats, and I'd been taught it from a dispensational perspective. And in the parable, Jesus himself pictures himself as the final judge that separates the sheep, putting them on his right to receive eternal life. And he separates the goats on the left to receive eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels, in the words of the gospel writer in Matthew 25. I learned about God's plan 
for the restoration of Israel, the coming judgment of mankind, the future destiny of the world, and immediately my brain raced over the things that I had been taught over the last week. Swirling in my mind were the implications of that passage and the dispensational charts I'd seen illustrated by Clarence Larkin. I thought about the separation of the nations faithful to the Messiah from those that weren't. I thought about the end times, the Left Behind series. I thought about the Old Testament passages that referenced Israel as God's sheep. Honestly, when he said that to me, I was flabbergasted that he even knew the story at 14. And in my surprise, I asked, I said, well, wow, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a really deep passage. What makes that one your favorite? And he looked at me, kind of confused by my reaction, and he said, well, because I'm a sheep. You see... In all my learning, I'd overlooked the main point of the passage. Jesus is my shepherd, and I'm one of his sheep. I'd missed the forest for the trees. The deepest truth held there was not academic or technical. It was relational. It revealed the heart of Jesus and drew me close to him. As my shepherd, it invited me to follow his lead and, and to trust him with the outcome. I thought the point was learning the technical aspects of interpreting the Bible, but Caleb knew that the most important thing about the Bible is that it's supposed to lead me to the good shepherd. You see, Caleb lived in the reality of his own impending death. And facing Jesus personally. Where for me, I, I think that caused a sort of sense of fear. I felt his death and I was afraid of what would come. For him, it brought hope. He knew that the heart of the shepherd because he had read what Jesus spoke. For him, studying the scriptures was not merely an academic pursuit. It was a relational one. And within a year and a half, Caleb, who suffered facial paralysis, which was a side effect of his treatment and the chemotherapy he was going through, died with a smile on his face. Jesus, his good shepherd, welcomed my brother into eternity and ushered him to his right hand. And at 14 years old, faith became sight. So today, as we talk about this subject of doctrinal maturity and gospel purity, the need for theology, I want to make sure we don't collectively make the same mistake that I made so many years ago. It is a lesson that I keep having to come back to again and again and again. It's something I have to keep being reminded of. This is an area of discipleship and growth, this idea of doctrinal maturity, of gospel purity, it, it, that matters. And it matters because this, it is the study of God. And the study of God and of his gospel is a pursuit in knowing God personally 
and more deeply. It matters because doctrine and, the, and gospel purity sets the framework for our lives. This is the framework, the mental map that we live out of. And if it's true that ideas have consequences, then there is no greater consequence than the one that we are considering today. So in our passage for today, Jesus tells his disciples and the crowd around him that both he and the gospel are worth living for, are worth dying for, and determine whether or not we are sheep or goats. Whether our lives will be saved or whether we will be ashamed at the return of Christ. And this is a key area of our discipleship. It's key to understanding how we make disciples and fulfill the Great Commission, how we disciple others. Okay, so let's go back to our definition. What is a disciple? We've summarized the Great Commission by saying this. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. Okay, that's what a disciple is. Well, then what is discipleship? Well, in discipleship, we walk with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. I love, I love what Dallas Willard says as he seeks to define the process of discipleship. He says, he says that it is the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. He then goes on to say, we are all becoming a person. The most important thing in life is the person you are becoming. It's our goal through this series to create a common understanding of how to grow as a disciple and how it is that we can disciple others. And we believe that the chief metric of the health of a church is not the number of people that gather, but the spiritual depth of those people. Are they growing in the likeness of Jesus. You see, gathering a crowd is something that even the world can do. But are we as a community being formed and conformed to the likeness of Christ? So in the past couple of weeks, we have talked about some of the other markers. We've already talked about God-glorifying stewardship, the aspect of our discipleship that relates to being managers of all that God gives. And we use the things that God gives for his glory. Remember, we, we talked about how Jesus is the king from Luke 19, who has gone to receive a kingdom and has entrusted his resources to his servants so that they can invest it for his glory and that they are to give an account for that. And then last week, we talked about authentic relationships marked by love. We discovered from Matthew 22 that our relationship with God and our relationship with those around us is a key indicator of our spiritual health. Are these relationships authentic? Are they real? Do they have depth? 
Are they marked by genuine biblical love? A love that is like Christ's love? It's a key aspect of measuring where we are in our process of growth. And so now as we consider uh, this marker of the eight markers of of, uh, discipleship, we come now to this third dimension of discipleship, gospel purity and mature doctrine. What is the category of gospel purity and mature doctrine? Well, in seeking to understand this dimension of our discipleship, we're trying to become aware of our own maturity in thinking about and living out of reality, not as we see it, but reality as it is, reality as God sees it. We're seeking to close the gap and align ourselves more fully with God's perspective of reality. The word theology simply means the study of God. And then doctrines are the conclusions that we come to about who God is and how he is working in the world. And this knowledge, these doctrines, and the theology that that leads to these doctrines is relational knowledge. It is more like knowing a spouse or a sibling or a friend. It brings about the ability to trust and love the one we know based on what we know about them. The gospel then becomes a key to understanding the heart and the actions of God as revealed through what he is doing through his son. So through the gospel, we know God better. Through the son, we know God more fully. He is the exact image and imprint of the father. If you want to know what the father is like, all you have to do is look at the son. You see, here's the deal. We are all theologians. Everyone has theology. Everyone right now has doctrines. The problem is that it is either good theology or bad theology. These conclusions that you've reached about the nature of God are either good conclusions or bad conclusions. Good theology sees and preserves the gospel. Bad theology corrupts and distorts the gospel. Good theology changes the way that we relate to God and others. It has an effect on how we live in community with one another. Bad theology is ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Good theology leads us to Christ. Bad theology leads us away from Christ. Good theology is worth living and dying for. And bad theology is an idea or a philosophy that is meant to be lived merely in the thought life and can be easily discarded when it no longer suits me. The importance of this pursuit cannot be overstated. You see, any distortions that we have about God or about the gospel also distorts the way that we live in response. The greater the distortions, the more chaotic the results in our lives. This is why theology matters. This is why doctrine is so important. You know what it's like? It's like wearing those drunk goggles that simulate drunkenness. You guys have ever seen that? How cops, a lot of times, 
They put these drunk goggles on in their training exercises, and it simulates drunkenness, and you, you try and walk in a line. But visually, everything is distorted, so it's very hard to manage normal behavior. The twisted lens twists your ability to walk forward. Okay, so summarizing this then, simply stating it, this is our definition. Gospel purity and mature doctrine describes, this category of discipleship, describes the degree to which we know God and the gospel with as few distortions as possible. We want to see it as it is. Now, this is a lifelong pursuit. We're going to always be learning and growing in this. This is not a, you don't come to a, a 45-minute sermon on a Sunday and get everything straightened out. It's a, it's a lifetime pursuit of growing in our knowledge of God. And doesn't that make sense? Because God is infinite, Right? And so our, our understanding of his heart, of who he is, that's going to be an infinite pursuit that we'll continue to mature in. And that's what we're seeking to do. We're seeking to grow in our maturity and preserve the purity of the gospel as disciples of Jesus. Okay, let's ask this next question then. How did Jesus model gospel purity and mature doctrine? You see, because... The Bible tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus then becomes the perfect example of what a disciple is growing into. Jesus had a perfect understanding of the Father. He lived relationally attached to the Father and saw him accurately. Jesus demonstrated that he knew his place in the plan of God to redeem the world. And he lived out of that reality. What he believed about God and his work in the world was demonstrated through his actions. What he believed and the way he lived were congruent. His knowing and his being in the world were harmonized. There are not distortions in the life of Jesus. From his baptism forward, Jesus began proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. This gospel, or good news, was the message that the harmony between God and his creatures that had been shattered in the Garden of Eden through the fall, through sin, is being restored now through his Son. And God is once again establishing himself as the king among his people. And for all those that trust in him, they can transfer their citizenship from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Jesus showed what the world looks like when it comes under the rule of God. And when those people enter in to the kingdom. When the kingdom is in control, nature obeys, and the wind and the waves are calm. Demons obey and flee at the sound of his voice. Sickness and brokenness and even death are broken at his command. Jesus lived for the gospel, and Jesus died for the gospel. You know, even after the resurrection... Jesus continues to demonstrate the rule of God through those that come to him in faith. He places the Holy Spirit in them. He changes their hearts 
and desires. He sends them as ambassadors of his kingdom to gather others. Jesus' knowledge of God and his understanding and lived reality according to the gospel are perfect. He becomes the perfect illustration of what it looks like to be mature, to have gospel purity and to live out of that reality. Okay, so what did Jesus teach? Well, we're going to take a look at this passage here. I want to work our way through this really carefully. In verse 34, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, in considering the words of Jesus to his disciples in the crowd, we have to slow our minds down just a little. We have to employ the discipline of sitting sort of reflectively with what Jesus is trying to communicate with the crowd that day. Previous to this section, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem where he will suffer many things, where he will be rejected by the religious leaders and will be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this does not fit Peter's understanding of what the Messianic king looks like. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus for talking about failing at his job. That, that, that's not how messiahs work. This, this is not how this is supposed to go. Now, Jesus, aware that the other disciples are watching him and aware of the satanic temptation behind Peter's words, says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And it is then that Jesus gathers the disciples and the crowd and begins to teach. You see, Jesus is teaching both his disciples and the people around him what following him as Messiah actually means. This is why he starts this short sermon by saying, if anyone would come after me. And then he says that the first stop will require self-denial. He must deny himself. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are shadowing him in his work. We're learning to do as he did. And Jesus plainly says, my going to the cross is the highest form of self-denial. To follow me is to do what I do. There are desires that are innate to your nature that you are going to have to deny in following me. You're going to have to learn how to live for something bigger, something more than simply what you desire or what you prefer. You're going to have to learn how to deny yourself. The second stop in Jesus' teaching is to take up your cross. Now, this would be a shocking statement for the original hearers. You see, the cross is where you ended up when you refused to submit to the earthly kingdom of Rome. That was a death sentence that was given to those that rebelled against Rome's rule. And Jesus is saying, you are invited to live in this way. You're invited to live in such a way that this kingdom matters first and most 
no matter the cost, even if it lands you on a cross, be prepared for that. Take the cross with you as you go. Be prepared for that. Live with your death always present. That's the idea. Now, there is an amazing fact about monks and monasteries that I think illustrates this point well. Perhaps you've seen paintings uh, with a, a monk maybe writing at a desk, and on his desk is usually like a candle, and he's got like a quill pen, he's writing on some parchments, and then on, on the, the edge of the desk, a lot of times what you'll see is a human skull sitting there. Have you seen artwork with that illustration? Those skulls were called memento mori. It's a Latin phrase that means, remember you will die. And the purpose of these mementos was to bring mortality to the forefront of the mind and to have that motivate the way that you live. As a matter of fact, one of the practices among certain monks was to take the former head monk from the monastery, after he died, they would let his body decompose, then they would take his skull and place it on the desk of the guy that replaced him. And it was a way of saying, hey, remember, you're going to end up where he ended up. So live faithfully. Dispatch your duties faithfully. Because we're all headed to the same place. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is inviting the crowd to live for the kingdom of God with eternity in mind. The third stop is where Jesus says, and follow me. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now in the face of Peter's lack of desire to see Jesus suffer, Jesus says to Peter, to the disciples, and to the crowd, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to go where I go. If I go to the cross and embrace rejection of the world around me, if I go in opposition of society and its desire to rule over me, if I go to live and die for a kingdom that matters more, then to follow me means that you go where I go. Remember, for the original audience, this is not just an allegory. You see, they had seen crucified people who opposed Rome's power hanging from wooden crosses beside the road. This image of following Jesus to the cross is raw and visceral and has with it the shock and, 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 and the horror that would, would have been a part of the everyday person's life living under Roman rule. And Jesus is inviting people to that. The call to follow Jesus means that every other thing in life will have to take a back seat to him and to his kingdom. It means that he and his kingdom matter more than the things that we desire. They matter more than even our own lives. Now this line of thinking is strengthened by what Jesus goes on to say in the following verses. Take a look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus tells them, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. 
Jesus is not shy about his worthiness or the worthiness of the gospel here, is he? In one sense, this should be a little bit off-putting to our senses. I mean, our, our minds should wrestle with this a little bit. To have someone tell you that they are worth dying for crosses all kinds of boundaries. It's near to forming some sort of cult, you might think. You know, often I've wrestled with the idea of whether or not I would actually die for my faith. I've played out scenarios in my mind, a sort of red dawn scenario. Those of you who were born in the 80s know what I'm talking about. A hostile foreign invader invades our country, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm in this position where, you know, YouTube videos are out and whatever social media with scripture is out, and, and now all of a sudden I, I am I'm arrested and brought before the, the powers that be, and I'm presented with an opportunity. Either recant and live, or identify with Jesus and die. And I've, and I've wondered, like, what would I really do in that moment? Do I really have the courage? Do I really have the strength? You know what's interesting, though, as I was thinking about this, is that when we reframe that same scenario just a little bit, the choice becomes no choice at all. So let's ask the same scenario, but let's ask it from a different angle. Would I die for my wife or one of my kids? You know, for me, the answer doesn't even require thought, 100%. I'd jump on a grenade. I'd, I'd face a firing squad. I, I would run into a burning building. There isn't a doubt in my mind. As a matter of fact, I can't even imagine pausing to think through the, the implications of it or, or, or even pausing to weigh the outcome. I would just go without care of the consequence. But why? Why would I do that? The answer is relationship. You see, I, I love these people. And I love them more than my own life. The love that I have for them causes the value of my life in my own eyes to decrease and to pale in comparison to how valuable they are in my life. It is relationship that makes the difference. Their worth surpasses my need for self-preservation. They matter more. See, now we are coming to the crisis that Jesus is presenting here. Jesus is telling those near to him that both he and the message of the gospel are worth living and dying for. To have this kind of commitment is to have a deep relational connection to them. Our love for him and the message about him must continue to grow to such a level of intimacy that the preservation of our lives no longer matters in comparison. This is what is happening in our lives as the people of God. We are growing in the depth of our relationship with Jesus through what we learn about him. And the message of the kingdom of God gets woven into every fiber of our being. 
All of a sudden, all of life only makes sense when we see ourselves in relationship to Jesus and in light of the story of the kingdom that God is building. There's no way to separate ourselves. We, can, we can't detach ourselves from that reality. To have to live outside of that reality is abhorrent to us. That's the kind of growth that we're talking about. So our love for Jesus and our love for the kingdom of God and the gospel that we so greatly enjoy grows to such a place of maturity that the preservation of our lives no longer matters in comparison. This is what God is doing in us. This message about Jesus, this knowing Jesus, changes everything in my life. It informs my understanding of why both my inner world and the outer world out there are so deeply broken. It gives meaning and direction to how I use my time, my talent, my treasure. It defines what love is because I've received it from Jesus personally. It changes the way I parent, the way I'm a husband, the way I'm a friend. It changes the way I extend grace and forgiveness and what I hope for in the future. It defines truth. It tells me I'm caught up in a struggle that is not merely psychological, but it is spiritual in nature. It tells me where evil comes from, why it's so hard to comprehend and understand. It defines everything about my life. It is like a pinch of leaven that permeates the dough of my entire life. It's like the smallest seed of truth that is planted in the garden of my heart that grows up to such a huge place that it takes over the entire space of my heart. It is like the spiritual fountain of living water that continues to gush from my inner being. And as Jesus does that work in us, I come to the conclusion that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and has been, been designed to bring glory to God. You see, for me to live means Christ being glorified in me. And to die is only gain. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. All the things that I left behind to take up my cross and follow Jesus, I count as rubbish that I might gain him in my life. Jesus and the gospel are worthy of living and dying for it. You see, to save my life, only to lose it in the end? It just doesn't make sense anymore. To lose my life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel is to save it for all eternity. In the words of Jim Elliott, who died bringing the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, who was beheaded for the sake of Christ and the gospel when he wrote to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel 
by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Do you hear the theme? Do you hear the perspective of the Apostle Paul, of Jim Elliot? And this brings us to the warning of Jesus. We saw the way of Jesus in verse 34, the worth of Jesus in verse 35, and the warning of Jesus in the last verses here from 36 to 38. Jesus concludes this short, impromptu teaching by giving a warning about outcomes. There are two realities that he wanted uh, his listeners to get their minds around. The cost of getting it wrong and the reward of getting it right. First of all, the cost of getting it wrong. Here's the cost of getting it wrong. Ready? This is what Jesus said. If you get it wrong, you lose your life. Even if you gain the whole world, you forfeit your soul. And you will be ashamed when you stand before me. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when you stand before me on the day of final judgment. The cost for getting it wrong is high. You know, you don't have to look very deep into church history to see what happens when you get Jesus and the gospel wrong. Even just a cursory view of church history will force you to deal with things like the way the Bible was used to enforce slavery, how the Crusades were justified, the Inquisition, the bloodshed that followed the God glory and gold ethic of the conquistadors, the controversy over John Calvin and the death of Servetus, how Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, how his anti-Semitic writings were sourced by Hitler to justify his extermination of the Jews, present-day prosperity teaching, and how it's rampant, among the poorest of the world, how it fleeces those that are the most oppressed. Not only are there bad outcomes, but one day, every person who is preaching in the name of Jesus will give an account for what they preached in his name. They will personally stand before Jesus and give an account for what was done in his name. The cost of getting it wrong is steep. It's high. But also, would you notice the reverse of that? The reward for getting it right. The reward for getting it right is that you save your life. You save your soul. And there is no shame at judgment. You stand before Jesus offering to him a life 
that is worthy of the gospel. Okay, so here's the teaching of Jesus to his disciples and the crowd gathered there regarding living and dying for the gospel. You see, in the mind of Jesus, he is personally worth living and dying for. Additionally, the message about his kingdom and redemption is worth living and dying for. So if we take literally what Jesus is saying, then a key marker of discipleship is our loving and knowing him. But it isn't just knowing and loving him personally, it's also loving and knowing the gospel so much that we would live and die for it. It's not just the person that he elevates, it's also his message about the kingdom of God. So this means that over the course of our lives, we will need to grow in our knowledge of and our affection for Jesus and the gospel. And this area of Growth relates to our understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. We must know and love Jesus personally. We must know and love the gospel deeply. And this is not merely an intellectual pursuit. It is the lifelong pursuit of constantly going back to what God has revealed about himself through the scriptures, through his son, and through the gospel message. It means letting it work its way down into our marrow so that this knowledge actually changes the way that we live. Knowing Jesus and knowing the gospel should actually change us. So, where do you think we are as a church? Where are we as a church as it relates to this category of our discipleship? As a church, this is actually our highest scoring category. You can see that we, we scored a 4.25 collectively. This tells us that we feel comfortable with the scriptures. We feel confident that we know the gospel well. And we agree strongly with the following statements in the discipleship assessment that we took last year. We agreed, I have a deep conviction that the gospel is about God's saving and redemptive work in the world. We said, I believe the purity of the gospel should be preserved and never mixed together with a cultural value, false doctrine, or political preference. We agreed that I know the scriptures well enough to trust and defend its claims. And we said, I'm not easily distracted by winds of doctrine or doctrinal fads that could keep me from staying on God's mission to reach the world. Now, this is something that we can feel good about. This is the strongest area of discipleship for our church, and it should be celebrated. It's a great strength in our church. It should be leveraged for the kingdom of God. We are a group of people who've spent time studying the scriptures. I mean, if you think about all that happens here, there's, there's a lot that's going on to this end. We strive here for excellence in the pulpit, and we do this because we believe that the people of God are formed by the working of the Spirit and the Word of God. We remain gospel-centered and focused on building the kingdom of God rather than gathering a crowd. That is an ethic that flows from leadership right here to the pulpit here today. We use the Gospel Project in the kids' wing, which is aimed at teaching 99 essential doctrines to our kids. If a child remains at heritage in first through fifth grade, they will go chronologically through the scriptures, through the main stories of the Bible three times in that period. And during that time, they will learn the basics of these 99 doctrines. It covers the doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of God, of scripture, of creation, the fall, sin, redemption of the church, 
and of the restoration of the world. That's what's being poured in right now into our kids across the hall in the kids' wing. Our youth are learning at the junior high and high school level to deepen those doctrines and to think through their impact on their lives as they consider identity formation and a whole host of other social issues. Then they break out into discussion groups. They talk it through with one another. They challenge one another about the meaning of those truths. See the same thing happening in men's and women's studies. Men and women discussing the scriptures and understanding how the gospel informs all of life. I see men learning how the gospel frees them from addiction through the conquer group and so many other things. This year, we launched a lead training uh, group to study alongside of Philippi and develop men that are capable of leading others. Just yesterday, those men gathered in Grants Pass at the offices of Philippi to study theology, to grow in their understanding of doctrine. Great things that are happening in our church. There's a strong presence and emphasis on growing and maturing in our understanding of doctrine and our understanding of the gospel. Not only that, but I see it in everyday lives of people. I see marriages. As I look out even among this crowd, I can think of specific stories that I know of personally where the gospel has entered in in a rough season in marriage and brought about healing, where an understanding of the scriptures has brought about freedom, freedom from the past, freedom from addiction, freedom from oppression, freedom from anxiety, because people are understanding what God has said. I know many of the stories that are represented in here. I think of salvation that has happened through the gospel. On the way up here, I passed by John and Cindy Harrison. They got baptized this last Easter together, husband and wife, right up here on the stage because the gospel is at work in their lives. So many others that came forward and were baptized. I see it happening, the gospel forming deep relationships within our small groups, within our huddle groups. Many of our groups have gone through intense trials in the last two years. Some marriage heartaches, sickness, divorce, intense and long-standing grief. Those things have been discovered in the closeness and the safety of friendship. And the gospel has been applied in community. And those people have pursued one another even when the person who is coming doesn't necessarily bring their easiest self in the moment. In the name of the gospel, and because people have soaked up the love of Jesus, they've said, I have to love like Jesus has loved. So many good things. Now, having said that, there's an interesting parallel truth that is an area to take notice of, to be able to recognize our need for growth. So our highest scoring category as a church is this one of gospel purity and mature doctrine. Our lowest scoring category is missional living. And the questions in this category were designed to help us know whether or not we are going about the business of sharing the gospel and making disciples as a church. The statements that, we show, uh, that showed the greatest need for growth uh, in as a church are these statements from this category. My prayer life 
reflects God's heart to see others know Christ because I'm always praying for people without faith in Jesus. We scored the second lowest score of our entire survey was on that question. The first lowest score is this, this question. I'm able to communicate the gospel to others with ease because it is something that I already share regularly. In other words, we show that our highest area of strength as a church is that we know the scriptures and the gospel. But the area in need of most strengthening is taking what we know and sharing it with others. You know, last week I was listening to a teaching from Tyler Staten. He is a pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland. And during this teaching, he referenced the fact that psychologists often talk about the difference between lived spirituality and stated spirituality. Stated spirituality is the mental map of things that we would say we believe. But lived spirituality is the truth that we actually live out of. You know, he went on to quote Brennan Manning from his book, Ruthless Trust, where Brennan is telling this story about a meeting with a mentor of his, a spiritual director, in which the spiritual director said to him, Brennan, you don't need any more insights into the faith. You've got enough insights to last you 300 years. The most urgent need in your life is to trust what you already know. Guys, as a, as a group, as a church, we know a lot of things. Where we can grow is learning to trust and live out of the things that we know. All of us live with this gap between what we say we believe and what we actually believe and live out of. The goal of learning is integration and the embodiment of what we actually believe to be true. Like Brennan, we're learning to trust God and rely upon what we know about him for ourselves. For us as a church, this is an opportunity for us to grow in not just believing in or agreeing with the gospel, but letting it live in our bones. It truly is good news. God is personal. He relates to us personally. And to the degree that we believe that will be the degree to which it is the main topic of conversation and the main thing we think about throughout the course of our lives. Where do you find yourself this morning? On, on a scale of one to five, if we're using a five-point scale, and, and we start out over here, on the one side, on the negative side, I know little to nothing about God. Or if you go to the, the other end of the spectrum, at the, the highest point, I know everything and live out of the truth perfectly. I'm just like Jesus. Okay? Anybody, any takers? Anybody going to raise their hand on that? Once you say that, we know that you're not humble and you're not like Jesus. And so you at least get reduced to a four. But let, let's see where you're at. Are, are you a one? I know little to nothing about God. Are you a two? I have exposure to ideas about God. Are you a three? I've begun to study for myself, but it hasn't changed how I live. Are you a four? I study and am being changed by what I know. 
You know, there's no condemnation for wherever you are. This is not meant to shame anybody. This metric is not the value of who you are, but a description of where you are in your discipleship growth. Knowing our greatest opportunity for growth enables us to zero in on the areas of our lives that need the greatest attention. I, I, I love using the analogy of marriage for this. It's so helpful to me because sometimes I'm killing it in one area of life in, in marriage, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm present and I'm a friend and I'm listening to my wife and I'm, you know, uh, attentive. And then on the other hand, I'm not leading in devotions or I'm not like uh, talking to her or praying for or, or talking to her about the word of God. And so when I recognize that, I have to wake up and go, oh, this area needs attention too, right? That's what this discipleship assessment is really meant to do. It's supposed to wake up those areas that need attention as well in our lives so that we can strengthen them and grow together. So there's no condemnation. It's an opportunity to know where we can apply ourselves. Okay, so then how can we, how can you, cooperate with the Holy Spirit and his desire to foster gospel purity and mature doctrine in us. I want to give you some practical tips. First of all, and we're going to go through these quick because we're running out of time. Learn scripture. Learn scripture. Get familiar with the scriptures. Listen, you can't check doctrine that you hear if you don't know the word of God. You, you have to understand and know the scriptures for yourself. And so if you're, on, if you're a one, I'm, I got a hot tip for you right now. I'm going to make you an instant Bible scholar. You ready? Take that ribbon out of your Bible, put it right in the table of contents. Right there. That way, anytime somebody says, open up to Habakkuk, whatever, right? You'll, you'll be like, flip page 843, right? And then you flip right over there and you're an instant Bible scholar just by doing that. But you can deepen your understanding of the scriptures by continuing to read and rehearse. Get a good study Bible. Study in community so that your doctrinal conclusions can be checked by broader thinking. Treasure great authors. Work to integrate the truth in your life. And to integrate, integrate the truth, you have to know what the truth is. It starts with knowing the scriptures. Read and respond to the scriptures, like read, journal, write notes, underline, highlight, mark up your Bible. Your Bible should just be this, this tool that is open to you where, where you are making connections and writing in the scriptures all of the time, studying for yourself that you might know. Meditate on it. Soak up the scriptures so that you know what God has revealed about himself. Surround yourself with the scriptures in day-to-day -day life. Add it to your playlist. Put it in art on your walls. Have, talk about it in conversations with others. Think about, learn, meditate on, dwell on the scriptures in day-to-day -day life. There are great questions that we should be considering uh, as we think about this, there's, a, there's an illustration that John Wesley used that I think is super helpful. He, he used what was call, later called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a sort of filter that was used to clarify doctrines that were the most important to li the life of the church. He taught that the scriptures were the highest court of authority for the believer. However, scripture alone was not the only check mark 
to inform us. Some people could make a case in Scripture for, for handling snakes and for the prosperity gospel, right? So we, we need other check marks as well. Um, and, and so he came up with these other filters. He said that we should also use the filters of reason, of experience, and of tradition, asking these questions. Is it plainly taught in Scripture? That's the whole of the target. Is it reasonable or does it make sense? Is it experientially true, or do I see this actually working out in real life? And then fourthly, is it practiced in tradition, or is there precedence for this belief that is seen throughout the life of the church? Is it common in church history? These are great questions to consider as you study the scriptures. It's a great way to filter what is necessary, what is unnecessary. Also, pray. Oh, and also pray. And when you've finished praying, you should pray some more. Talk to God about what you're reading. Be responsive to what you're learning. Ask God not only to deepen your understanding, but to make the truth something that is lived and experienced. Invite the Holy Spirit to work the truth into your life through circumstances. Third tip, share what you're learning in community. Discuss it. Talk about it. Beat it up. Let somebody else argue with you. Fourth thing, become a student of church history. There's a great many errors that can be avoided by simply looking at the debates that have occurred in history already. You can also discover some of the most treasured doctrines being explored by some of the most brilliant thinkers or groups of thinkers in history. Church history is a great way to learn and understand doctrine. Okay, so last question, how do we help each other grow? We live in what some call the information age. This is the greatest obstacle that we face as the people of God in the present day. It's the assault on our attention. We've got Netflix and social media and email and sports and fashion, all things seeking to garner our attention and take our time, take up bandwidth in our brains. In order to make progress, the most urgent need in our lives is to trust what we already know. And in the present time, we're going to have to learn how to discipline ourselves to give attention to the things that matter most in life. We have to enter into the lives of one another. We have to encourage one another to enjoy the journey. Let me share with you how this has happened. Uh, a week and a half ago, uh, in, in, in my own life, uh, I, I got together with Mike Robinson. He's one of our elders, theologian extraordinaire. Um, president of Pacific Bible College, I got with him in anticipation of this teaching right here. And I said, hey, I want to discuss this with you. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in. We're going to talk about how to preserve the purity of the gospel and what doctrines lead to error, and we're going to do all that. And Mike's like, let's back up just a little bit from there. The most important thing about learning about God is that we know him. He just put all the emphasis right there. This sermon was shaped by his influence in my life. On Tuesday morning, I gathered together with some guys online for my men's Zoom Bible study where the discussion helped me to see afresh that God is not looking so much at what I give him, but the heart with which I give it. Again, I was checked, like, what's my goal here in teaching? My goal is to offer to God something that he is worthy of and to bring his people closer to him. The heart of this matters. The staff meeting, we discussed this teaching together and we thought through the obstacles to growing deeper and more mature doctrine. On Wednesday, I was reading a book by John Mark Comer where he wrote, The Church 
of Jesus is only one generation deep. We need to know doctrine. I was reminded how important this is for our church. During the day on Thursday, I got a call from my son where he asked what I was doing. I was writing this sermon. He's, he's like, hey, tell me about the sermon. And so I discussed it with him, and he asked me some questions that were helpful in refining my understanding of how important this, play, this thing is in our lives. Help clarify things. On Thursday evening, I met with Mike Dietz and Jacob Cook to discuss teaching and to develop questions for the huddle groups. And during that time, God used them to continue to refine my thinking and shape the posture of my heart in coming today. And this morning before service, I took a short walk and prayed through what I'm sharing, asking God that God would deepen this truth and this reality in my own heart. And on the way in, Jonathan Johnson grabbed me and said, let me pray for you as you go up to teach. See, that's how this happens. Living like this over the course of a lifetime will continue to deepen our gospel purity and doctrinal maturity. Imagine spending my life like this. In fellowship, talking about the scriptures, growing with others. It's a long change, but it is the life of a disciple. And so I'm to don the posture that agrees with God that this is important. I'm to don the posture for growing in love for God through knowing him. As the band comes up, I want to pray for us. Listen, as you gather Sunday by Sunday, as you gather in teaching, as you gather with your family to read the scriptures and, and grow together, we hear to know. We hear to know. We know to learn. And we learn to be. We hear the scriptures that we might know God and as we know God, we learn to imitate him and we learn to imitate him so that out of our being comes the behavior and life of Jesus. Amen? Would you pray for, with me? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to sit with this category and think about our own discipleship before you, God. Continue to grow us. Continue to mature us that we might know you deeply. That the gospel might be the most treasured truth in our lives, the most precious thing to us. That the worth of you and of the gospel would be worth living for. And if necessary, would be worth dying for. May we love you deeply as we continue to grow the likeness of you.